Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. Increment 62. And we'll go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 to start with. And begin with a word of prayer. Father, we pray for our president and for the first lady today who are diagnosed with the China virus. We pray that they will have a full recovery and hopefully only mild case. We pray for those on his staff also who are suffering from this. We also pray for those across our nation who have been affected by this virus. We pray that you will act as Christus Medicus, Christ our great physician in every case. And more so, Father, our nation is in a state now of stasis and political gridlock. We pray that you'll remove the root of bitterness that has caused such bitter partisanship in our nation and a toxic root that has sprung up and defiled many. We recognize that if this goes on, it could be to the profound detriment of our nation. And so we pray that only through your grace, for the song that we sing in tribute to our nation and in tribute to you, that you shed your grace on America is true. May we not fail the grace of God that you have poured out upon us. And we ask also, Father, that we will be available to receive the spirit that you have poured out on your people, a spirit of grace and supplication during this time and even during this season of what's known as a pandemic season. You have poured out a spirit of grace upon us and you have poured out a spirit of supplication so that we may learn to effectively pray for one another. And may that continue as our brotherly love continues, according to Hebrews 13.1. Hebrews 2.17, for the same reason, he was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God, a phrase which is used in the Alexandrian Greek text of Exodus chapter 4 and verse 16 and Exodus 18, 19, and 20, things pertaining to God, a phrase also found, tapros ton theon, in the epistle of Paul to the Romans in Romans 15, and verse 17, where Paul says he will only boast in the things in Christ Jesus, things that pertain to God. And instead of dealing with that, I was intending to deal with that subject in great detail today, but I think I got orders from above to reduce the many, many pages of notes I had to address the present situation on propitiation. What is it? Quidset, what is propitiation? And to home in on that target a little more precisely today and a little more deliberately. The exordium, as Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is called, the exordium or introduction of this word of exhortation, which is what Hebrews thirteen twenty two is called. 
The epistle to the Hebrews contains en nuce, the entire revelation of Christ that the author wishes to convey right there in those first few verses. En nuce, in a nutshell, the entire revelation of Christ that the author wishes to convey to his readers and hearers. Said another way, the introductory statement of this homily is enlarged throughout the entirety of the discourse. Included in the exordium is what I call the pregnant and climactic disclosure that the Son in whom God has spoken with decisive finality in these last days has made purification for sins. Katharizmon ton hamartion. Pois or poiesamanos, which means he has accomplished it, he has achieved it. Purification, katharizmon, is the inclusive term that describes the act of Jesus as our great archpriest with regard to sins. Consequently, purification is in the mind of the PT when he later speaks of Jesus making expiation, propitiation, expiation slash propitiation. I've deliberately made that a twofold term. And in fact, expiation and propitiation really are technical theological terms that can confuse the issue. So hopefully we'll clarify it a little bit today. Purification, again, is an inclusive term in Hebrews 1.3 that describes the act of Jesus as our great archpriest with regard to sins. Consequently, purification is in the mind of the PT when he later speaks of Jesus making propitiation for sins or expiation, propitiation, as we have it in Hebrews 2.17. Or when he speaks of Christ who appeared at the juncture of the ages to put away sin. There the word athetesen tes hamartias is very explicit. It means to put away to abolish, to do away with altogether. Sin in the singular, Hebrews 9.26. So Hebrews' homardiology, or the theology of sin, meets Hebrews' soteriology, the theology of salvation, in Christ, who made purification for sins through his experience of death, the wages of sin, for everyone. Hebrews 2.9. Consequently, when any other term is used or descriptive term is used or phrase, the effect is always the purification of the sinner and the perfection or completion of the sinner as a worshiper who can confidently approach the throne from which God dispenses his endless grace. That's Hebrews 10, 1 and 2 in connection with Hebrews 4, 16. In any and all cases, in propitiation, the actor is God in Christ. Or, 
simply Jesus acting as God toward human beings and as God as man, as God as man for all human beings. So it seems that later theological reflection on the technical theological terms propitiation and expiation has muddled the interpretive waters here a little bit, muddied them a little bit. So Charles Cousar, that's C-O-U-S-A-R, brought the problem into focus in his book called The Theology of the Cross, an excellent little book. He writes, propitiation presents a major problem as a translation because it raises the specter of the pagan deities whose anger had to be assuaged by some sort of sacrificial gift. There is certainly no thought here, and he's referring specifically to Hebrews 9.5 later on, there is certainly no thought here that God demands or seeks appeasement because of offenses humans have perpetrated. Now that's extremely important because we do not want that definition of propitiation that turns God into an idol God, an idol deity. There is certainly no thought, I'm repeating Kusar's quotation here, there is certainly no thought here, and he's speaking of the, pre, pre, the mercy seat in Hebrews 9.5, that God demands or seeks appeasement because of offenses humans have perpetrated. So this notion of propitiation is not the biblical one, though it must be stated that the wrath of God is involved in propitiation. God's wrath or his anger, however, is not directed against human beings per se, but rather against that which would destroy them, that being Sin. Sin is actually personified in Paul's writings and is depicted in his epistles as a cosmic adversary. It is argued whether sin is personified in Hebrews and usually it's assumed that it's not. However, I would say we should look a little closer at Hebrews 9.26, one of the heart and soul verses of Hebrews, where Christ's putting away of sin is just that. Not the putting away of sins, but the removal of sin, as you would remove a king from a throne. We could certainly read into this verse an apocalyptic sense. That's Hebrews again, 9.26. I can't emphasize the importance of that verse enough. Christ appeared once at the juncture of the ages, completion or juncture of the ages. That's where the cross is. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, once and for all and forever. That's once for all of humanity, for all of time. Effective into perpetuity, forever. God's wrath, a real thing, was always against sin. Animal sacrifices could not assuage that wrath because they could never take away sin. But the sacrifice of the Son did 
take away sin. John 1.29 also addresses this in the singular. Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sins of Israel, but the sin of the cosmos. And that includes the sin that has caused the entropy of the celestial, celestial universe. The Son and his sacrifice did take away sin once and for all. The taking away, and you should see sin as something taken away, or the complete removal of sin is called, theologically, expiation. The effect of the expiation, therefore, or the taking away of sin, is the turning away of God's wrath and the resultant freedom of God to express his love freely and openly to all people. This does not mean, listen carefully, this does not mean that God was angry with people and did not love them. And so he had to sacrifice his son to appease his anger against people. It's not what it means. It means that God, who already loved with unconditional and unrestricted love the world of humankind, loved them so much that he gave his only eternally begotten son, the son whom he generated out of his own substance and consubstantial with himself, who by becoming sin put away sin, by becoming sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, put away sin. As a result of putting away sin, God's anger, if we may call it that, was turned away, and the obstacle to the full expression of his unrestricted love was removed. So he now expresses his love freely, without obstacle, to us, and shows his mercy freely to all. As archpriest, Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is an act that pertains to God. Jesus, who made propitiation for the sins of the people, is now the living proof of that propitiation, face to face with God. Propitiation, which is to hilaskestai, that's H-I-L-A-S-K-E-S-T-H-A-I, to hilaskestai, in Hebrews 2.17, and hilastarion, in Romans 3.25, hilasmon, in 1 John 2.2 and 4.10, is what we might call the primary thing that pertains to God. I've been using the twofold term propitiation-expiation up to now. And this is because both expiation and propitiation with regard to sins are descriptive of the more general term, the purification for sins that the Son made before being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3.
So here in Hebrews 2.17, made purification for sins is called to make propitiation or expiation for sins, the sins of the people. This is said to be the act of Jesus, the merciful and faithful archpriest. It is important to remember that Jesus is called merciful. He's our merciful archpriest. Now again, I seem to be dancing around the fire here. We're about ready to jump into it in a moment. In Luke 18.13, the same verb, helaskomai, in its lemma, the lemma is simply the verb form that you see in glossaries or lexicons. It's called the lemma, L-E-M-M-A. And so we have that form of the verb that we would see in the lexicons, helaskomai, H-I-L-A-S-K-O-M-A-I. It's used by the publican who prays a prayer to God that is translated in Luke 18.13, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Holman Christian Standard Bible has this. God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner, exclamation point. In both translations, an obvious interpretive decision has been made by the translators. To one, the word to be propitious means to turn away God's wrath from the sinner. To another, it means to be merciful to the sinner. Now, this may be related to the fact that the related word hilasterion, that's H-I-L-A-S-T, long E-R-I-O-N, the hilasterion, or the cover, kapara in the Hebrew, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, the earthly tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies of the earthly tabernacle, is often called, the hilasterion is called, the mercy seat. You see it in Exodus 25, 17 to 22, Leviticus 16, 2 and 16, 15, Numbers 7, 8, 89 and Hebrews 9.5. Now in Hebrews 9.5, the writer, the PT, says we don't have time to get into detail about this. So that's why I've reduced my study a little bit in it today. I don't have time to get into detail with something that he doesn't have time to get into detail with. But we have to get into enough detail to describe what is propitiation. There's another time when the writer in Hebrews 11:32 to 33 says what more can i say time would fail me if i was going to deal with Gideon and Jephthah and David and Samson and the prophets and all other heroes of faith if i were to list them all i don't have time because why didn't he have time because he's dealing with a word of exhortation here he's essentially telling people why would you want to forego your association with such a great person as Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man, in order to find favor with your present society, in order to avoid being canceled or doxxed or trolled or rejected or shamed by your present culture. 
Look what a great savior you have. Look what a merciful and great archpriest you have. There's no higher privilege than to be associated with him. That's what he's after all through Hebrews and his word of exhortation. So he doesn't get bogged down talking about a lot of detail, even though that in itself would be a wonderful study and people have engaged in it for 2,000 years in studying Hebrews or nearly that long. So, again, hilasterion, the mercy seat, or propitiation, which is the verb here in Hebrews 2.17, to make propitiation, hilaskestai, or the related word hilasmon for propitiation, expiation, in 1 John 2.2 and 4.10, is the primary thing that pertains to God here and to the priesthood. It's something that the priest makes, does, enacts. Here in Hebrews 2.17, made purification for sins from Hebrews 1.3 is called to make propitiation or expiation for the sins of the people. This is said to be the act of Jesus the merciful and faithful archpriest. It is important to remember, again, Jesus is called merciful. Now, I've repeated that section on purpose. Again, in Luke 18, 13, the publican in the temple prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this, again, speaks of the mercy seat, the cover on the Ark of the Covenant. It speaks symbolically of both the means and the place of expiation. Expiation essentially means making something, that is sins in this case, not to be. Making something not to be. No longer existent. Or to put away sin or sins. But God is not to be viewed here as needing to be placated as if he is angry and requires a sacrifice to appease his wrath toward sinners. It is eminently true that sins had to be expiated, put away, made not to be, and people purified in order to be brought into God's presence and blessing. But God is not to be viewed as the pagan gods who require human sacrifices to appease their wrath against human acts that displease the deity. The act of propitiation slash slash expiation was performed or enacted by God in Jesus Christ. God is not the acted upon object of propitiation. Therefore, we must look upon him as the acting subject Not the object acted upon, but the subject who is the actor. He acts to purify the people from their sins through an intermediary agent, that being his own and only son. Now, a paragraph in Fleming Rutledge's book that lives up to its title, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Christ, helps us here. And so I want to reiterate this paragraph or at least place it before you. 
She says, God is not divided against himself. When we see Jesus, I like that little phrase, we see Jesus. We see the Father, John 14, 7. The Father did not look at Jesus on the cross and suddenly have a change of heart. The purpose of the atonement was not to bring about a change of God's attitude toward his rebellious creatures. God's attitude toward us has always and ever been the same. Judgment against sin is preceded, accompanied, and followed by God's mercy. Remember I told you last time my heart's indicted by a theme called mercy, a motif in the scripture called mercy. I'm going to repeat that little section in Fleming Rutledge again. Judgment against sin is preceded, accompanied, and followed by God's mercy. She goes on to say there never was a time when God was against us. Even in his wrath, he is for us. You see, she does not deny that there is such a thing as God's wrath. The Bible doesn't either. But it says the wrath of God is but for a moment, while his mercy endures forever. His loving kindness, his benevolence, his beneficence. So she says this, even in his wrath, he is for us. She goes on to say, yet at the same time, he is not for us without wrath. Because his will is to destroy all that is hostile to perfecting his world. I would say completing his world. So this is regarding completion. The paradox of the cross, she concludes, demonstrates the victorious love of God for us at the same time that it shows his judgment upon sin. So, propitiation is the act of God in behalf of all of humanity. This is me now. It is the act of God in his son. It is what God spoke in his son with finality at the junction of the ages when Christ appeared to put away sin once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. So this term propitiation has rightly been rejected if by that term one means the appeasement of God's wrath or God's anger against people or acts that people have committed that have displeased him. Even in Romans 1.18, where Paul's opponent speaks about the wrath of God, it is said there to be unveiled from heaven, not against people, but against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of those who suppress the truth by unrighteousness and against idolatry. Propitiation is rightly understood as God's wrath against sin against that which alienates people from God and from his life. And so God has acted in wrath against the sin that alienates humanity from him in order to reconcile the world of humanity to himself. Jesus is the living proof 
that God has acted in this way once and for all in a son, in his eternally begotten son, who was made to be sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so expiation is the putting away of sin, and propitiation is the result of the putting away of sin. If we want to get exact, God's wrath against sin was satisfied in the act of expiation of sins which occurred in Jesus. If you were really angry about something, wouldn't you be satisfied when that something was obliterated into nothingness? And that's the analogy. God's wrath against sin was satisfied, we could say, in the act of expiation of sins which occurred in Jesus. In that way, Jesus fulfilled the antitype or became the antitype of the type of the Levitical priests who once a year entered the earthly holy of holies with blood which they sprinkled before, in front of, and against the cover of the ark which was called the kapara, or the hilasterion. Augustine was right. He wasn't right about everything, but he was right when he said that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. But God goes farther. He separates the sin from the sinner and judges the sin. Jesus, in whom there is no sin was made to be sin. Nothing short of this event caused the putting away of sin and the turning away of God's anger. Again, and that's anger towards sin. Again, the answer to our initial question of intelligence, which we've asked at the very outset of our study of Hebrews, why did the Son have to be perfected and why through suffering? It's answered more fully here. The answer is so that he could be perfected in the vocation. He could be perfected vocationally, we could say, by being a faithful and merciful archpriest. And by doing so, he could be perfected revelationally or as the self-revelation of God, the visible akon or self-revelation of God which is God's loving and merciful, beneficent and faithful self-dedication to all human beings and all of creation. God's self-revelation in Jesus is his self-dedication in grace and mercy to all of his creation in all of its times. This perfection could only be realized through the suffering of the Son, whereby he made purification, propitiation for the sins of the world by becoming sin. Now, speaking of Fleming Rutledge, she's also helpful by referring to an often quoted passage. It's quoted by many exegetes and theologians, and it's of a man named C.K. Barrett, B-A-R-R-E-T-T. This is the quotation. And this is from his commentary, not on Hebrews, but Romans. 
but Romans has a reference to the propitiatory and the propitiation in Romans 3.25. He says, we can hardly doubt that expiation has, as it were, the effect of propitiation. The sin that might justly have excited God's wrath is expiated at God's will and therefore no longer does so. To this, we would add the, the insight reported by Gareth Lee Cockerell in his commentary on Hebrews, who says his death can also be seen as a propitiatory in that he as propitiatory in that he took upon himself the covenant curse on the disobedient, and that he finds in Hebrews nine sixteen to twenty two. So I would say here that it's pretty clear that Hebrews is primarily concerned with the purification for sins which the Son made or accomplished and afterwards was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. In fact, this exaltation of the Son is the main idea of this whole discourse all the way through chapter 7. Chapter 8 begins, as we've noticed, with, quote, Now the main thing of what is being said is that we have an archpriest who is so significant that he has taken his seat at the right side of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now why would you want to break off your practical association and fellowship with this great archpriest? Is it because... You're buckling under the pressures of society. That's, again, the main message I want to hold in front of you because that's the word of exhortation. Hebrews 1.3 states that the Son in whom God spoke with finality in these last days has sat down at the right side of the majesty in the heights above which there is no higher glory or majesty. Having made, after having made... Poieo, purification, katharismon, for sins, hamartias. So Hebrews 2.17 revs up the engine that was revved up at first in Hebrews 1.3. And it says that this son, Jesus our archpriest, makes propitiation for the sins of the people, or expiation. The son who made purification for sins propitiates or expiates the sins of the people as the archpriest. So made purification in Hebrews 1.3 is in the aorist tense, and it denotes a past action which occurred at the cross when the lamb was holocausted or completely burned up in an offering, as it were. Propitiates, expiates, then, is in an ongoing present tense. Though he has suffered once and for all and achieved the purification of sins once and for all, the beneficial effects of this purification continue. As 1 John 1, 7 intriguingly says, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, continues to cleanse us from all sins. Purification of sins, then, is the big thing. It's the big theme that was accomplished by Jesus. It is an act that is not only associated with his death on the cross, 
but also with his entry into the Holy of Holies in heaven, after which he sat down in the highest heaven on the right hand of his Father's majesty. So the analogy is that he is the lamb, the whole burnt offering on the cross. But his blood was also carried by the priest himself into the Holy of Holies heaven, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So he's the antitype that fulfills all the types of the Old Testament. But remember, the, the PT doesn't have time to elucidate all of these things. And that we aren't either. I'm not going to either. It was tempting. But again, I think I got an order from above to reduce a lot of the things that I had ready to convey to you just to get down to these main points. The brass tacks and the grass roots, as it were. So there's a connection between made purification, the more general term, and propitiation or expiation, the more specific terms in Hebrews 2.17. Purification of sins. That's the big thing. Because sinners have to be purified to approach God. It is an act that's not only associated with his death on the cross, but also with his entry into the Holy of Holies in heaven, after which he sat down in the highest heaven at the right hand of his Father's majesty. So this theme, which is introduced in the exordium, gets fresh treatment in Hebrews 2.17. That's why we haven't left there yet to go into Hebrews 3 where it says, quote, he was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things, the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation expiation for the sins of the people. Purification of sins, katharismon in Hebrews 1.3, is somehow similar to propitiation expiation of sins, to helaskestai, Tas Hamartias in Hebrews 2.17. So I think we can simplify and by doing so clarify the meaning of the sometimes technical theological terms expiation and propitiation. Some people say we shouldn't distinguish between the two. I think we should to make a differentiation of consciousness for the listeners. The word that's deployed in Hebrews 2.17, which is translated variously as to make expiation or to make propitiation, and sometimes to make atonement, and one or two times to make reconciliation, is all the same word. Because that which the verb does is done towards sins and not people, in Hebrews 2.17, then we would have to say that the act in question is performed on sins in behalf of the people who are thereby purified. The effect of the archpriest making propitiation expiation for sins has to be the purification of people from their sins. Such purification is evidently deemed necessary for people to approach God in worship and in prayer. 
That's why it's so important that we recognize these things if we're going to be effective prayer warriors. Purification, katharisman, is also the subject in Hebrews 9.14 where the blood of Christ is said to have the effect of purifying the conscience resulting in the service of the living God by the one who has benefited by that purification. There, the blood of Christ, who offered himself to God without blemish through the eternal spirit, without blemish makes reference to him as the lamb, offered himself to God without blemish through the eternal spirit, purifies katharii, the conscience, not from sins in that case, but from dead works in order to serve the living God. In the context, Hebrews 9.14 is contrasting the mere ritual or ceremonial purification that was achieved by the blood of sacrificial animals, and he's contrasting it with the sacrifice of Christ, which accomplishes the purification of the conscience of the individual worshiper, and by so doing achieves the completion or perfection of the worshiper in Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. In other words, do you realize how many people act out of an evil conscience, out of guilt, out of shame, out of fear of being shamed? And the blood of Christ gets right down into the conscience and blows away all the dead works that are ready to be done by people in guilt or fear or shame. Ready to be done. The Christian life isn't the assuaging of our guilt by the doing of dead works. It's the service of the living God as priests through people with a purified conscience. They've been purified and washed from an evil conscience. These kind of people cannot be cowed into guilt by the kind of things that are going on today and the re-education of children to teach them to be guilty in order to be manipulated by a false perception of history. And that's why we should teach our children the gospel and teach our children the blood of Christ and the purification of the conscience that comes through it so they can go forward in life free and free from guilt Damnable guilt, guilt which in itself is an evil. So expiation relates to the act of taking away sin. <clears throat> Propitiation to the act of the priest applying the blood of the sacrificed lamb on the mercy seat. Hilasterion, a related word, H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N in the Holy of Holies. That is the act <coughs> that Jesus performed in reality when he went into heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, did not go into the earthly Holy of Holies with the blood of others, that is, with the blood of animal sacrifices. <coughs> but he went into heaven by virtue of the merit of his own blood which is another way of saying his own expiatory death on the cross. He then passed through the heavens, not through the outer and middle court, 
of an earthly tabernacle, <clears throat> but in through the heavens into the presence of God and sat down at the right hand of his majesty after performing the real act of entry into the Holy of Holies by the merit of his own blood. First he did that, then he sat down. Propitiation is the act of the merciful and faithful archpriest who is the antitype of the act of the archpriest of the Old Testament who goes into the Holy of Holies once a year with the blood of others. Jesus goes in once and for all with his own blood or by the merits of his own death and achieves a redemption that's eternal. Expiation differs from propitiation as the holocaust or the whole burnt offering of the animal's body differs from the sprinkling of the blood of the same animal on the hilasterion. Now, this is a distinction that I find to be painful. In other words, people who understand what it means to study arduously understand that sometimes you only get to the truth after you pass your soul through the eye of a needle. But expiation corresponds to the holocaust of the Lamb, which consumes the sin of the world. Propitiation corresponds to the act of the priest of the Old Testament in sprinkling of the blood before and against the mercy seat, the cover on the ark. Expiation relates the faithfulness of Jesus as our archpriest. Expiation, therefore, has a specific relationship to the faithfulness of Jesus, our archpriest. Propitiation relates, on the other hand, to the mercifulness of Jesus as our archpriest. So I say expiation relates to his faithfulness because his faithful obedience as the Christ, remember Reigns 235, 1st Reigns 235, his faithful obedience led to the death of the cross in which he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself once for all. So I say, on the other hand, propitiation relates to his mercy because he went into heaven to be the intermediary of God's mercy, saving mercy, which he intends to show to all. And in one sense already has shown to all in Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Hebrews 1.3, the Son was God's intermediary agent in creation of the universe. The universe refers to everything or all things, tapanta, <clears throat> that actually come into being, that hadn't been being before. They came into being being non-existent before. This is called creation ex nihilo, out of God, by God. Or out of nothing, rather, by God. Again, I'll say this. The Son is said in Hebrews 1.3 to be God's intermediary agent in creation of the universe. Not the angels, the Son of God. The universe refers to everything that came into being ex nihilo, by God. Neither the Father as God eternally unbegotten, 
and the Son, or the Son as God eternally begotten, ever came into being. Neither came into being. Neither did the eternal Spirit, by whom Christ offered himself without blemish to God, ever come into being. Hebrews 9.14 The builder of all things, in Hebrews 3.4, applies to both the Father and the Son as it says at the outset of the Exordium of Hebrews. God made the universe through the Son. His Son. Hebrews 1.3 The Son necessarily pre-existed the universe of proportionate being, therefore. The Son necessarily pre-existed the universe of proportionate being. He pre-existed proportionate created being as the uncreated being that is God and who is all out of proportion to proportionate being. He is superior to the angels as mediator, not least because the angels were created by him in Colossians 1.16, and for him, in the same verse, he is superior to the angels as mediator also because as God, who became like his human siblings in every way except for sin, he became better than the angels and inherited a name that is above all angelic names as the man Christ Jesus. He is superior to Moses, as we're going to find out in Hebrews 3, as a mediator between God and human beings, because he is God. He is God. And because he made Moses and made man's mouth, including Moses' mouth in Exodus 4.11. Moreover, he is superior to Moses in a way that the builder of a house is superior to a household servant. Jesus is superior to the priests of the Levitical order, not just because, listen carefully to this, because this is where I'm taking off on my own in this, where I see the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ in Hebrews. Jesus is superior to Moses and to the priests of the Levitical order, not just because the sacrifice that he offered was a better sacrifice, and oh, it was, or not just because or only because the sacrifice was himself, which is remarkable, but also because the sacrifice that he offered was and is not for the people only called Israel, but for all people everywhere over the course of all time. The purification for sins, which he accomplished and completed as a merciful and faithful archpriest, was achieved as the indispensable accomplishment required for all things and all beings to be reconciled and summed up in him. You see, purification for sins in Hebrews 1.3 has no qualifications. It's a phrase that's universal. It has a what I would call a, an extreme generality. 
It doesn't say the sins of the people, the sins of Israel, the sins of the church. It simply says the purification for sins. And so there is a, an extreme, gener you know what's extreme generality? Universality. There's a universality to that phrase. The purification of sins is above, we could say it's the Roman numeral one in an outline where A is the propitiation for the sins of the people in Hebrews 2.17 is a part or a subcategory to that. Well, I know it's a mouthful, so I have to get down to the nitty-gritty in this and other messages. But the purification for sins, which he accomplished and completed as merciful and faithful archpriest, was achieved as the indispensable accomplishment required for all things to be reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, and summed up in him. Purification for sins, then, is a phrase of extreme generality. And that's where I'm getting into my territory here, what my contribution is to the study of Hebrews. Purification of sins is a phrase of extreme generality. It does not say the purification for Israel's sins specifically, but the purification for sins generally, even universally. Of course, that act of purification included the people called Israel. But as an Israeli theologian once wrote, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation expiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. John, the elder who wrote 1 John 2, 1 and 2, understood the extreme generality, not only of the purification for sins, but the propitiation and expiation of sins. Consequently, it seems that the things that pertain to God in Hebrews 2.17 is also a generality meaning more than just offering service to God, though Jesus certainly does serve God as our archpriest even now and throughout the age. The things pertaining to God, Hebrews 2.17 still, have to do with the mystery of God's will. This is the last segment of the message today. The things pertaining to God have to do with the mystery of God's will in Ephesians 1.9, which is to sum up everything in Ephesians 1.10 in his superior royal and priestly representative, the Messiah, the Christ, namely Jesus. What is required to happen for that to happen the will of God to sum up everything in Christ, what is required to happen for that to happen is for the Son to be made just like those whom God is calling into glory and that he suffer, die, rise again, and ascend to heaven through his own blood, where, as the antitype of the archpriest after the order of Aaron, 
who once a year went into the Holy of Holies of the earthly tabernacle with the blood of sacrificial animals, which they sprinkled around the mercy seat. Jesus is the antitype, the fulfillment of that type and the exceeding of that type in the fact that he went into heaven through the merits of his own atoning death and in essence applied that merit to a mercy seat in the real heavenly holy of holies after which he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high now he's the one with whom you are associated on this earth he is the one whom you confess your faith in he is the one with whom you are associated this is an identity politics. This is our identification with the God of the universe in his son, Jesus Christ. What will you sacrifice that association for? Approval by men? Approval by a cancel culture? Approval by people that are infected with the toxic root of bitterness? Who spend all their time shaming others? I don't think so. And this isn't the kind of legacy and heritage I want to see passed on to our children and our children's children. So, Father, we thank you for the glorious truths of Hebrews, for the glorious Christ, our Lord Jesus, whom we see crowned with glory and honor. And we thank you, Father, for the bond and the association that we have with him. May it remain practically unbroken in every life of every listener to this message. For in the closing of this message today, I present myself to you afresh, Father. I entrust my spirit to you and also the spirits of all those who have heard and received this message. I pray that it will be to their great benefit that they will be and that we will together experience the magnificent benevolence and beneficence that you have shown us in Christ so that we may be agents of that same beneficence and benevolence to our own generation. And so that like David, we may serve our generation before we go to be with you in glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Don't forget, Communion service will be occurring in what will be our October 11th increment. It will be after the service, but it will be on tape or it will be on, it'll be recorded. And so everyone can participate in our remote communion service, which will probably be, I guess it would be on increment 64, which will be ultimately up on the website by October 11th. So whenever you listen to that message or watch it or, or listen to it together, we can have a communion service that's going to be coming up October 11th. Thank you for your attentiveness today.